Could a rogue planet mess up the solar system? What kinds of damage could we expect from an intense solar flare? And is there any way for amateur astronomers to contribute to science? All this and more in this week's Question Show. Welcome to the Question Show. Your questions, my answers, as always, wherever you are, across my channel. If a question pops in your brain, just write it down. I'll gather them up and I'll answer them here. Now, we do this show live every Monday at 5 p.m. Pacific time. So if you've got a little time on your hands, you want to join the live show, uh, come on down and uh, we'd love to have you. And you can ask your question live, ask follow-up questions, chat with the rest of the people. It's a good time. So there should be an event somewhere on my channel. Click on that. I don't know, get a notification, subscribe to the channel, click on the notifications bell, and uh, make sure you show up when we do the next live show. All right, let's get into the questions. Carl Fulmer, 1767. Would a rogue planet passing through the solar system have major influence on the orbits of the other planets and throw everybody out? Or does it simply depend on the planet's size and trajectory? You kind of answered the question, which is that if a rogue planet does pass through the solar system, what happens depends on the size of the planet and the trajectory and the, I guess the, the distance. Yeah. And you know, before this was very much like a hypothetical question, like, oh, what if a rogue planet passed through the solar system? But we're now getting to the point where it appears that there are a lot of rogue planets, as many rogue planets as regular planets, more rogue planets than regular planets. And these rogue planets are hard to see. You know, if one was coming very close to the solar system, we wouldn't be able to see it until it got very close. Space is big, time is long. And so this kind of event has probably happened many times in the past, and we just didn't know. Now, the solar system has been around for 4.5 billion years, and the orbits of the planets are roughly stable. I mean, they do have slight variations. The, the Earth sometimes is a little bit closer to the sun and a little bit farther from the sun, and all the planets have a little bit of that, and they also don't completely perfectly orbit along this plane of the ecliptic. So some of them are a little higher, some a little lower. Pluto is like really tweaked over. And so the traditional thought was that all of those worlds were shifted out of their positions because of just all of the interactions. You know, we know that a Mars-sized object crashed into Earth early on in the history, that the, those kinds of planetary collisions were happening all of the time. And so maybe those were the cause of planets having orbits that aren't perfect circles. But maybe it was from stars passing too close, or even rogue planets passing through the solar system. Wouldn't it be amazing if one of the planets in the solar system is actually a captured rogue planet, although that would be really tricky to do. But when you look at things like, say, Triton, which orbits backwards from the rest of the moons around Neptune, it was probably a captured Kuiper belt. But could it be a captured interstellar object? It's been thought that there are a couple of moons that might be captured interstellar objects. So it's thought that this kind of thing could happen. But in the 4.5 billion years that the solar system has been around, nothing devastating has happened. And so it's likely that anything that will happen in the future won't be that big. But if a rogue planet, let's say something that had several times the mass of Jupiter came through the solar system, it just depends on the trajectory. If it came very close to various planets, it could absolutely kick them into a trajectory that's going to carry them outside of the solar system. It could kick them into a trajectory that would then cause them to crash into another planet like 
Jupiter or maybe crashed into the sun. So yeah, if the wrong planet passed through the solar system at the wrong time, it would cause mayhem. And we haven't seen it happen here in the solar system. But if there really are that many rogue planets out there, then these kinds of situations are happening all the time out there across the hundreds of billions of stars in the Milky Way. Any event that is incredibly rare, but across 100 billion stars is going to happen from time to time. And maybe we could see this, like maybe we could see some brightening happening in some planetary system caused by a rogue planet crashing into a planet as it passes through the system. Like, like we've seen what appear to be impacts of planets in young solar systems. But that's the kind of thing that you would expect that, you know, as the planets are still forming, they're going to crash into each other. But if we saw one that was like very mature, it was billions of years old, and then suddenly, it had this brightening, that would be very surprising. And maybe that would be caused because of a rogue planet passing into that solar system. You probably noticed the Star Trek planet name that appeared above my shoulder. This is a way for you to vote for you to tell us which of the questions you thought was the best or the answer that you thought was the best. And so last week, we had a tie boat about me being so grumpy about asteroid mining, and my three recommendations for astronomical experiences to do so thanks everybody who voted. We will put a new Star Trek planet name up in the corner with each question. And so when you get to the end of the episode, just put down the name of the question that you thought was the best. And then we'll gather up those and we will celebrate it next week. Singularity Zero, it must be an existential nightmare for intelligent life evolving on such a star system that is literally drifting in the middle of nowhere with no chance of reaching other stars. This question is related to this idea that if the Milky Way was located inside the Buddhist void, where you are hundreds of millions of light years away from other major galaxies, then it wouldn't have been until the 1960s or so that we had telescopes powerful enough to let us know that we were in a universe that had other galaxies, we just know of the galaxy, we wouldn't know of any of these other things like, you know, we see you can see Andromeda with your unaided eye, well, you would need really powerful telescopes to be able to see something like Andromeda. And so instead of it being a galaxy, imagine it was just one single star system, there was like some small pocket of gas and dust or some star system got kicked out of some other place a long time ago. And now it's drifting in the middle of the void. And so you would look in the sky every night and you wouldn't see any stars. And then someone would build a telescope and they wouldn't see anything They build a telescope. And then it wasn't until they had the equivalent of the 1960 telescope that they would finally get a hint that there were other galaxies. Would it be lonely? Ah, I mean, it all depends on your psychology, I guess. I mean, we see other stars here around us, but they are all so far away that they're practically unreachable in our lifetime in our grandchildren's lifetime. like it could be hundreds of years, 1000s of years before humans from Earth are able to cross the gap to reach another star system. And so I think like, we all have that same both wonder and existential like awe of this gigantic universe that is like beyond our comprehension, that we can perceive galaxies that are billions of light years away. And yet, they are, for all practical purposes, beyond our reach, even the stars, even some of the objects in the solar system are so far away from us. And science fiction told us no, no, no all this, you just hop in your warp drive, 
spaceship and you just go there and you hop out and you meet the aliens and it's fine but it's all so far away and so i don't know and then the other sort of more nightmarish scenario is you imagine the poor civilizations that evolve on a world with high gravity like earth is the almost the most gravity that you could get and still be able to escape with rockets you could escape the earth's gravity if it was like 1.1 times or 1.2 but once you get to about 1.5 times Earth gravity, you would have like a giant Saturn V rocket and all you would be putting into space is just a few hundred kilograms. That's how difficult the rocket equation is. And so imagine some civilization that is trapped on a planet. They are able to evolve. They build a society, a civilization. They reach out. They find other civilizations out there and nobody wants to come too close to their gravity well because it's too great. And so they can never leave their planet. But is that us too? You know, like we can never practically leave our planet. So I think the more you think about space, the more you think about the size of the universe, the more existential awe and also kind of existential horror you get. Tim Ucken. You talk about intense solar flares disrupting satellites and such. Can you go into more detail about what the effects would be? Sure. So What's happening is that when the sun has a solar flare, when it has a coronal mass ejection, you get a flood of charged particles that are hitting the Earth. And the Earth's magnetosphere is like this protective bubble, and it redirects those particles down towards the poles of the Earth. And that protects us from this radiation. And even under the most powerful solar flare that we can possibly imagine, we're fine, we're protected by the magnetosphere, no problem. But our electronic devices can be damaged. So electrical devices, right, they're flowing electrons through the wires and that's making all the devices work. And when you have some kind of significant geomagnetic event, it is going to, and pardon the technical term, jam electrons through the wires and it's going to lead to surges in various places and and you know any one individual device you know if your laptop was just sitting on your lap unconnected from power then it's probably fine you know your phone probably fine but as you have larger and larger connected infrastructure like power systems then these have a chance to you know as the power surges through the systems, then you get these overloads and they can fail catastrophically and they can go down. And like, think like, I don't know how, what it, like for you, but when the power goes out along my road, no matter where the road is, everybody's out of power because it's this one single line that runs a loop around all of the homes. It's about 180 homes on my road. And if the power goes out, they're all out. But that's because nothing is in parallel. So, what would happen really is that the, the larger transformers power structure would go out. You know, in some cases they'd be overloaded, they'd be damaged, they'd be destroyed. And then each one of those would need to be repaired. But while that's happening, your fridge is out, your air conditioner is out, your heater's out. Uh, all of these things that you rely on are down. And then you can't charge your electric car, you can't you know, just think about what happens when the power goes out and imagine it's going to take days, weeks, months for 
everybody to get the power back operational. And there's some people who think that 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 is something that we can't easily recover from. It would cost hundreds of billions, maybe even to the trillions of dollars, and it could be worse. I mean, if the power goes out for a month, what does that do to society? So that's the risk. And then of course, the other issue is that we have the satellites and satellites, some will be fine, some will be damaged. Depends on the strength of the geomagnetic storm, depends on sort of how the satellite is hardened against these geomagnetic events. But you know, if those satellites go offline, then they're no longer able to do any station keeping. They're no longer able to avoid one another. And so you've got an increased risk of satellites crashing into each other. So right now we're in kind of the nascent stages of this dawning on society as a threat. You know, we know about earthquakes and we have codes for building houses to earthquake codes. And we know about tornadoes and people have shelters in their houses, but we don't really have a plan for dealing with a very powerful geomagnetic storm. I think NOAA in the United States is now issuing alerts to people's phones if a very powerful geomagnetic storm is inbound. And so you would get a warning and then you could go and say, shut off the main power to your house. And that would disconnect you from the grid. And then if the power surge is, you know, is really devastating, your home would be protected. But the question is, is the transformer that's connected to you can't easily disconnect that. But maybe we'll get to this place where you can maybe we'll get to a place where we'll have some advanced warning and the the power company will flick a switch or they'll run out and disconnect all of the main transformers and break up the grid. Of course, everybody's power will go out while they do this until the solar storm is passed and then they'll connect everything back up and they'll come back up online and better to be out of power for one day than to be out of power for months. So right now we're sort of in this weird stage where we're aware of the magnitude of the problem and we don't really have a lot of easy ways to defend against it. And the more technology we get, the more at risk we're going to be from this. Roka, when will we implement Lagrange point scale interferometry telescopes? Well, I've done a couple of episodes about this idea. And so the impression that I get is not soon. But the idea here is, of course, interferometry, where you can combine the light from multiple telescopes that are separated. And the more you separate them, the bigger the baseline. If you separate two radio telescopes at a kilometer apart, then it is the equivalent resolution of a telescope that is a kilometer across. That's nice. And so there are plans to build, say, an upcoming uh, gravitational wave observatory called LISA. It's going to be the legs will be tens of thousands of kilometers long but we can do better than that. And so the idea that I really like is that you put a radio telescope, like similar to the Event Horizon telescope. You put one radio telescope at the Earth-Sun L4 point, the Earth-Sun L5 point, and then at the Earth-Sun L3 point, which is on the other side of the sun. And so you get this gigantic equilateral triangle. And even though the Earth's orbit is elliptical around the sun, if you move these three telescopes in concert with each other and you keep track of their position, you can actually keep them to within a few thousand kilometers of keeping this perfect equilateral triangle all the time. And so then imagine you had a radio telescope that was 220 million kilometers across. Now, the challenge with this is getting the data back home because radio telescopes 
take in an enormous amount of data and then you'd have to get that data back home. And we've actually been talking about this a bit on the channel back and forth that it might be that we go back to this era where you send hard drives back to earth with all of that data. Or maybe you have some mission that is slowly going around the Earth's orbit and gets close to each one of these telescopes in order and downloads all of their data and then brings it back to earth after 10 years. I really love the idea of us having a interferometer that is the size of the Earth's orbit. That would be amazing. Um, now I did a whole interview about this and so you can talk about it like, like it won't get you what you think. And so, you know, we talk a lot about like, what are the results? Like if you did have an, an Earth's orbit size interferometer, what kind of benefits would you get? And you wouldn't necessarily get the kinds of stuff that you would be hoping for. Like you want to see planets around other stars, but you would be able to see much closer to black holes. You'd be able to detect gravitational waves at much longer wavelengths. So who knows? And you know, I don't think we'll ever get to a point where we have a visible interferometer, but that would be incredible, right? If we had a visible light interferometer, size of the Earth's orbit, it would be a telescope that is 200, and, you know, then we could, then we could resolve incredibly fine features, pick out planets around other star systems. So uh, stay tuned for that, but don't, don't hold your breath. Ed Stoffer, do other star systems go back and forth above the plane of the galaxy like ours does? Yeah, all of the star systems in the Milky Way are, you can sort of imagine like a record that is warped. And so it's got these sort of like waves that move up and down across and around the Milky Way as it's as it's, all of the stars are orbiting the Milky Way. And this was one of the discoveries that was made a few decades ago. They realized that the Earth, as, as it follows this orbit, doesn't just follow you know, perfectly around the supermassive black hole at the heart of the Milky Way. It actually bobs up and down in the plane of the Milky Way. And one of the theories was that this might be an explanation for why we've had global die-offs at various times in the ancient past. And so the thought is, is that whenever the sun is in the middle of the disk of the Milky Way, it's protected by the collective heliospheres from all of the other stars that are in the vicinity. But as the sun bobs up above the galactic plane, now it's no longer protected by all of this. And so it's much more able to get hit by cosmic radiation, which is the more damaging kind of radiation. These are the really high energy particles that are sent by supernova and magnetars and actively feeding supermassive black holes and things like that. And then, so you would get more die-offs on Earth and then the sun would dip back down into the galactic plane and they'd be protected again. And they, the math that they did was that the times when the sun had been above and below the galactic plane have roughly matched the mass extinction events that have happened on Earth. So, so this is like one intriguing possibility. Uh, you know, we'd have to wait a few tens of millions of years to find out if it's true or not. But back to your question, yes, you would assume that all of the stars are doing this bobbing up and down the above and below the galactic plane as they make their orbit around the Milky Way. And like, like some are more extreme and others are less extreme. If you want to support the work we do at Universe Today, consider joining our Patreon club. Your support lets us have a minimum of ads and no sponsorship messages. Patrons get no ads on universetoday.com for life. Want the extra parts of the live stream that aren't in this edited version? You can sign up for a special patron-only podcast feed and get the overtime segments, as well as other special behind-the-scenes episodes, including our monthly patron-only question show. 
Thanks to everyone who has already subscribed and welcome to the recent newcomers, Michael Berg, Robert Elliott, Kier Allen, Mark Perkins, Trevor Marsh, Nicole L. Jackson, James Franklin, John Bell, Philip Estrin, and Wendell Walker. Join the club at patreon.com slash universe today. Agent Dark Booty. Are there any relatively low-hanging fruit that an amateur astronomer could contribute to science? Absolutely. Amateur astronomers make some of the most contributions to science for any field, like maybe birding where lots and lots of people go out and count birds and the ornithologists use that for their own data, that's pretty big. But I would say astronomy comes in right after that. There's a lot of ways you can get involved. Like there are just like, if you want to learn the sky and look around, you can discover supernova. There are many people who discovered hundreds of supernova. You can discover asteroids if you are able to like take pictures of the night sky. You can find comets. Uh, so there's a lot of this kind of stuff that's done. And then you can also um, get involved in things like, say, the uh, variable star observatory groups. You can um, you can track the dark sky. There's people that will sort of every couple of years, you have an app that will allow you to take a picture of the sky and then compare what you've got to various classifications. And you can sort of send all this data in and they're figuring out how we're losing our skies to light pollution. Um, but one of the things that I think is pretty exciting is that amateurs can actually help confirm exoplanets. So there have been exoplanets that are found by, say, TESS or Kepler, and they just have one transit and they don't have a lot of follow on observations from other people. And so if you've got a telescope set up that has a good photometer that you can actually measure changes in brightness, you can go after some of these planets that have transited some star and nobody has seen a follow on transit. And then you just watch the star for as long as you can. And hopefully eventually you'll see the star dip in brightness briefly and then go back to its normal brightness and you'll be able to provide additional data. And there've been plenty of exoplanets that have been discovered by amateur astronomers. You can also confirm exoplanets when there are these microlensing events. So we get these situation where there's like a, a foreground star and a background star and the foreground star acts like a lens to the background star. But as it does, any planets that are around that star will kind of tweak the light and you can identify planets. And often when these microlensing events are seen, you've only got a couple of hours for people to come and watch that star while this lensing event is happening and then it's over. And so amateurs can jump on and help provide a view from different perspectives on Earth and be able to confirm the exoplanets. And there's stuff you can do without a telescope. Like I'm one of the people behind CosmoQuest where we had tons and tons of citizen scientists jump in and identify landing sites for the OSIRIS-REx mission. People have counted craters on the moon, on Mars, have helped find Kuiper-built objects for um, the New Horizons spacecraft. And then there's the Galaxy Zoo and they do have a lot of interesting work that you can get involved in. So yeah, absolutely. There are tons and tons of projects. And I think, you know, it's time for the obligatory Vera Rubin comment. Uh, the Vera Rubin telescope is just around the corner. And when it does, it's going to be just disgorging so much data, petabytes of data, too much for the astronomers to work through. And so amateurs who have a lot of like technical knowledge, database knowledge can jump in and help sift through all of these data and help find new discoveries. There's going to be things we've never seen before. We don't know what we're looking for. You just got to look for anomalies in that data. And so, you know, you don't have to be a PhD astronomer to run database queries. If you know what you're looking for, or if you kind of know what you're not looking for, then you can help identify stuff. Um, we reported on Universe Today that that 
amateurs are looking through surveys from old telescopes like WISE. They look through the, the old data and they look for things that have never been seen before. And there's this one amateur astronomer who's found dozens of brand new planetary nebulae, supernova remnants in this WISE data. So, you know, I, I don't have like a comprehensive list of places to go and get involved, but I promise you there are tons and tons of projects that match your personal level of of interest and gear to get involved in. NC, is there a limit besides the speed of light to the speed that can be attained from consecutive gravity assists? What stops it from zigzagging between planetary orbits before catapulting out of the system? So a gravity assist is where you steal a little bit of the orbital momentum from a planet like Jupiter and you give it to your spacecraft. And so you imagine you've got the spacecraft that is flying towards say Jupiter and as it falls under Jupiter's gravity well, it falls down into Jupiter's gravity well, and then it climbs back out of Jupiter's gravity well. And those two things balance. So you get a speed boost, but then you get slowed down as you come in and out of Jupiter's gravity well. But the gravity of Jupiter is pulling your spacecraft up to Jupiter's orbit. And so you actually get that boost of additional velocity because of Jupiter pulling you up. Now, on the flip side, you slow Jupiter down just a tiny little bit. You know, if we kept doing these gravitational assists, we would lower Jupiter's orbit until it crashed into the sun, but that would take a long time. Each time that you do one of these gravitational assists, you get a speed boost. And so if you did some kind of elliptical orbit around Jupiter and then went way out, and then fell back in and then did another gravitational assist past Jupiter, then you would be able to increase your speed. And the limit is going to be the escape velocity of the solar system. Like once you're going beyond a certain speed, you just there are no more objects that you can do gravitational assists of. But if you line things up perfectly, then you could go past multiple planets. Of course, that's what the Voyager did, right? Voyager 2 was able to go past Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune, and was able to get a gravitational assist from each one of those flybys. And the most effective gravitational assist that you can do is actually the sun. So what you do is you fly your spacecraft close to the sun. And as you're doing a flyby around the sun, when you reach the closest point of your elliptical orbit around the sun, you fire your thrusters. And that multiplies your velocity for the rest of your journey. And so you can actually get your spacecraft going significantly faster when you do that flyby of the sun. But that's going to be your limit. The limit is the escape velocity of the solar system. You get a certain number of those and then you're just going too fast and you'll never be able to come back. But there are other flybys that you could do out there across the Milky Way, right? If you fly close to another sun, another star, then you can get another gravitational assist. And the perfect gravitational assist machine is a black hole. That if you can fly incredibly close to a black hole, then you will be able to be pulled by the black hole. You get the advantage, you get that gravitational assist from the black hole, and then you're just kicked off. And you could get closer and closer to the speed of light if you can find multiple black holes. But same problems can happen. Eventually, you're going to be going faster than the escape velocity of the Milky Way, which is like several hundred kilometers per second. And then you're going to have to find gravitational assists in other galaxies, you know, so maybe go past the supermassive black holes of multiple galaxies over the course of tens of millions of years before you actually are able to reach your maximum velocity. So yeah, you're always dealing with the practical, what is the maximum escape velocity of the place that you are and uh, you just can't keep going faster because eventually you're just going to get kicked out. Luis Diaz, do we have any other potential solutions to deep space communications other than finding a way to transmit information via quantum entanglement? 
And I know that might not be possible ever. So I'll go to the quantum entanglement question first, which is that you can't use quantum entanglement to communicate faster than the speed of light. You can't use it to communicate any faster than the speed of light. And like, imagine you had a coin and you put it into, in, imagine you had a coin and you had two boxes. You put the coin into one or the other box randomly, mix them up, and then you gave them to two people and said, go to other sides of the city. And then at some point, whenever you want, open up the box and find out whether or not you had the coin or not. And so one person goes to one side of the city and they open up the box and they're like, I have no coin. And the other person goes to the other side of the city and they open up their box and they go, I have a coin. How did they communicate, right? Like one person had the coin, one person didn't have the coin. Spooky, right? So that's kind of how quantum entanglement would work. Now it gets more complicated because until you actually make the observation and see whether or not you have the coin or not, it's as if the coin is in both places at the same time. And the box, you know, like if you could like rattle both boxes, they would sound like they have the coin, but also don't have the coin. And only when you actually do the observation, do you actually see it. But my point is that no information is, is transmitted. So if I'm on one side of the universe and I have a quantum entangled particle and I observe it, then I know that my friend on the other side of the universe you know, if I get spin up, then my friend got spin down. And my friend knows that if I got spin down, my friend got spin up. But I don't know when they've observed their particle. They don't know when I've observed my It's not like, you know, your particle goes ding, someone just observed me. You just like whether you observe it first or second, you get the same result. And so there's just there's no way you have to communicate the results of your experiment at the speed of light. And so unfortunately, quantum entanglement just isn't going to get you there. And no, there is no way to to communicate faster than the speed of light. That is the limit. It's the law. Um, but you know, when we communicate with spacecraft, say ones that are really far away, like New Horizons, you're looking at very significant drops in the throughput of what you can receive from the spacecraft. You know, if New Horizons was sitting right beside the receiver, like on the ground, it could be transmitting at gigabits. But when it's all the way out to Pluto, it's only transmitting at a few bits per second. And that's because you just lose so much of your of your transmission power by that enormous distance. So the thing that would be very effective is that if we had more infrastructure in the solar system, relay stations. So imagine instead of you being all the way out of Pluto, and you're going to try and transmit your data from Earth to Pluto, you have a ring of satellites that are orbiting at Saturn and a ring of satellites that are orbiting at Neptune. And Uranus. And then you want to send a signal back home and you just chart a path through these relay stations in a way that is the best line of sight. It's effectively the speed of light, but you're also being able to transmit at your maximum throughput because you're not having to make these big long jumps each time. Each spacecraft receives a signal, sends it on along the chain. And so that will be our future. We will have more infrastructure across the solar system. And so we'll be able to send more data around. But until then, the farther you go from Earth, the harder it is to send data home. You know, people always ask me like, why isn't there like a HD video on Mars that's sending like, why isn't there a live cam from Mars? Well, it's because Mars is very far. And you would need a transmitter that is just like the size of one of those gigantic dishes just to send 
HD video, real-time video back home, there's more sort of, you know, there are other priorities for the data stream. And so we don't get live pictures like that. Clive Warren, you were talking about bad YouTube science videos. Who would be your top five science YouTubers you would recommend? I, I can't give you a top five, so I'll just rattle off a bunch of names and I apologize for the people that I've forgotten. Um, so in the space side, I'm a big, big fan of David Kipping. Uh, you know, he's like both scientist and a YouTuber and like publishes research papers, but also thinks about aliens. I think he's great. Um, PBS Space Time with Matt O'Dowd, uh, Scott Manley, Marcus House, um, Joe Scott, Anton Petrov, um, Dr. Becky, uh, A. Collier, uh, Space Mog. And then for like science, like I really like, um, you know, Kyle Hill is great. Uh, man, there are so many, three blue, one brown. There are so many good science YouTubers out there as well. Um, Cody's Lab, and I can't, I, I feel bad saying a bunch of names because then I'm gonna forget a bunch of names. So I don't have any top fives. I don't like superlatives, but there are so many good channels out there. But I think it is important. Like you do, like definitely in the, in the, in the chat, go ahead and post some people that you like. But I, I do think that, you know, we're entering this era where people won't know who they can trust, that, that YouTube isn't doing a great job of making sure that Veritasium, um, Vsauce, uh, Smarter Every Day, uh, yeah, YouTube isn't doing a great job of, of letting people know who is trustworthy and who is spouting nonsense. And I, I'm still getting, like I go to YouTube and I get some channels that I know are nonsense, you know, uh, James Webb sees beyond the universe for the first time. No, it didn't. <laughs> Omu, alien life seen Oumuamua. No, it wasn't, right? Um, and the problem is that, you know, if you're not constrained by reality, then you can say anything. So, uh, so it'd be nice if YouTube did a better job of providing crash course, especially crash course astronomy. That was really good. Uh, squirrel, all right. John Michael Godier, Isaac Arthur. Um, these are great. Brian Cohen Doherty. What's your favorite aspect of cosmology? I'm, you know, I'm still fairly early in on my journey to understanding cosmology. Like I talk about a lot of concepts in cosmology, but you know, when I'm doing my work for universe today, as I'm sort of looking through the research papers that are coming out and I'm now able to mostly understand what the abstracts of any paper is, um, a lot of it is still way beyond my understanding. And I'm really enjoying that process of learning more about it. And so I, I don't have a, a favorite aspect. What's amazing to me about cosmology is what astronomers are able to figure out based on the kinds of tools that they have at their disposal. When you think about the cosmic microwave background radiation, it is the afterglow left from the formation of the universe. And it is this temperature that is seen in every direction that you go. And yet so many of these fundamental discoveries about the nature of our universe have been found from the cosmic microwave background radiation. We know the age of the universe. We know the at least the minimum size of the universe. We know the shape of the topology of the universe. Um, 
people have been able to determine the presence of the cosmic neutrino background of the universe because of it, because of the shape that the, uh, you know, of the various oscillations in the cosmic microwave background. Astronomers have figured out the amounts of dark matter in the universe based on that. So, so I would say that my favorite aspect is the cosmic microwave background. It is just like, that's the joke that we would always make on astronomy cast is that all answers are found in the cosmic microwave background. Synthetic future entertainment. Could all the metal particles from launches that are stuck in the upper atmosphere become a problem in the future? It depends on the altitude. So the closer you are to the Earth, the more quickly the particles are going to burn up and re-enter the Earth's atmosphere. Um, like the International Space Station has to be boosted on a regular basis or it will continue to lose altitude and eventually it'll hit more and more atmosphere and then it'll burn up. And of course we get these these announcements every now and then that some satellite is uncontrolled re-entering the Earth's atmosphere and it's going to hit somewhere randomly on Earth. You know, don't worry. Um, so that happens. And so it's just about the altitude. Stuff that is in low Earth orbit, stuff that's say below 500 kilometers of altitude, that will all burn up within a few years. But the stuff that is 700, 1000 kilometers altitude, then that stuff can take hundreds of years, thousands of years. And as you go above, you know, farther and farther from Earth, then that stuff can take tens of thousands of years, hundreds of thousands of years, and like out to geostationary orbit, it's effectively forever. And so, um, you know, which orbit are you worried about? The ones that are very close to Earth are relatively small. And so they, yes, if there was like a lot of debris in that area, there'd be a high chance of you hitting another spacecraft. But at the same time, it's all going to get cleaned up. While the stuff that is, say, a thousand kilometers up, it's a much bigger area. But also, that stuff will last for a very long time, thousands of years potentially. So, you know, like people are worried that we're going to hit this moment where suddenly a satellite crashes into another satellite and that satellite crashes into another satellite and then you get this impenetrable shield of metal around the earth and that's it we're trapped space over but that's not how it's going to work that you will see an increased risk in you making journeys through this area and if you have a satellite that is loitering in that orbit then it has a higher and higher chance of getting hit it's going to, have to make more maneuvers but if you're going to try to just escape earth then you're going to go very fast. You're going to go right through the region and out the other side. And the chances of you hitting anything are incredibly low. So it's more of an ongoing issue for like, you know, let's say there's a river that's polluted or a stream that's polluted and you quickly run through, right? Your chances are you're not going to experience that much pollution from quickly jumping through a river as opposed to being a fish that lives in the river. Like that fish has got some problems. So that is what this is like. I'm going to talk about some media that I like, but first I'd like to thank David Richards, Mark Anstis, Joel Yancey, Antonio Lofilara, Dustin Cable, Vlad Shiplin, Monzo, George, David Giltonen, Andrew M. Gross, Jeremy Mattern, Josh Schultz, and Jordan Young, who support us at the Master of the Universe level, and all of our other supporters on Patreon. So this week I want to share something that isn't space, but I thought it was just fantastic. And that's Blue Eye Samurai, which I saw on Netflix. And it is anime and it is violent, it is graphic, but it is so good. It is just an amazingly well-told story that goes in places you weren't expecting. The, the writing team behind it I, you know, is a husband and wife. She's Japanese, 
He's American, I think. Um, and he was the writer for Logan. So if you liked the Logan movie about Wolverine and Professor Xavier, uh, and there was another movie he wrote that I liked. Anyway, I don't wanna go into too much detail about what the show is about. And so if you're okay with some animated violence, you know, if you watch anime, uh, it fits in that but the storytelling is just top-notch. It gave me very um, Avatar The Last Airbender vibes, but but for a more mature audience. And so I think, you know, if you were a kid and you really loved Avatar The Last Airbender, and now you're an adult, but you want something that makes you feel kind of nostalgic for that, watch The Blue Eye Samurai on Netflix. All right, we'll see you next week.